Those are powerful images. If you're a follower of Christ, there's probably something moving about seeing that and thinking about the fact that He died on our behalf, that He went to the cross to endure those things for us. If you're new to exploring Christ, you might say, why are you showing all that gory stuff in church for crying out loud? It's a Sunday morning. I didn't come for that. Right? So if you're new to exploring Christ and, and these images, you know, ultimately the ultimate story of liberation is the story of the cross. Is Jesus coming against political corruption, uh, spiritual corruption, and ultimately the whole world coming against him to defeat him, to stop him from starting a, a, a wave of new thinking, a wave of, of life that ultimately didn't work because here we are 2,000 years later still talking about it, still exploring it. So what I want you to think about is this, if, if, if you're not sure you believe in Jesus or God, you're not sure why he died, you know, that is totally okay. But today I want you to sort of put a question maybe on the, on the forefront of your mind. And the question is this, what if Jesus endured all of what we just saw because he loved you? So I don't know if I believe it. You see, the difference between Christianity as, as a religion or philosophy is that what it's really all about is an event, an actual historic event that occurred is what the message of Jesus is all about. So you can study this event we just watched. You can look into the archaeological evidence for it. You can look at the manuscript evidence for the, the Gospels that give an account to it. And you can say this either happened or it didn't. And then you can say, well, if it did happen, what does it mean to me? If it did happen, what does it mean that God himself, if there's a God and if he came to earth, would go through that for me? I want to back you up to the beginning as we go through Joy's story, to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Let's go ahead and turn the page. <clears throat> we find ourselves in Capernaum. Jesus is now around 30. He's going to begin his ministry, and he finds himself in Capernaum. I got a chance to visit Capernaum about 18 months ago. I was in Israel. <clears throat> and Capernaum is this area that they've uh, been digging up the areas around it. There's a synagogue there. It's the intellectual capital of the world. They would say that Galilee was on the way to everywhere. So when God placed his son, that's what the Bible teaches, that's what I believe, but if you don't, that's okay. God placed his son, not just in some hick town, but he put him in the central intellectual capital of the known world. In Galilee, which was a major pathway between Egypt and the Babylonian Empire, everybody went through this area. So much so that they have one of the largest synagogues holding the most amount of scrolls of probably any area of that time occurred here in Capernaum. This was like the Oxford of its day. They trained all of the philosophers, all of the rabbis came right through this area. Also notice it's right in the Sea of Galilee. So here in Capernaum you see a, a highly influential, affluent area as well. The fishing industry here in the Sea of Galilee, you had all kinds of commerce going on here. So much so that the Roman government set up a tax office in Capernaum. Now you know how taxes work. You know, if there's a place where lots of money is being made, that's where you set up the tax office. You see, not every city got its tax office. Most cities were too small or too poor, but not Capernaum. Capernaum had its own tax office because of so much affluence, so much money coming through this area. So living in this area is Peter, who will be called to be a disciple. And Peter's house, they've actually excavated and found it. It's right here, about 50 yards away from the Sea of Galilee. He had a monstrous house. So much so that Jesus and all 12 disciples could hang out at his house. It was so large. Many times they spent the night there. And Peter has a very affluent, very influential business. They own a nice home 50 yards from the beach. 
And this is where Jesus comes to his life and says, I want you to think about whether or not what you have, though it's good, could I move you from good to great and come change the world with me? Here's sort of a, an artist's rendering of what the industry and economy of, of a Capernaum might look like in the time. And I think what's interesting about Capernaum is that there's at least four types of people living there. And the four types of people in Capernaum are the four types of people that we still find today when it comes to religion or God or Jesus or, or these kind of spiritual matters. There were the Roman shakers, the religious fakers, the money makers, the opportunity takers. The Roman shakers, they weren't that superstitious. They would sort of shaken off the need for religion. Oh, the Jewish people need that kind of thing. The Greeks need that kind of thing. We Romans are warriors. We have our honor. Only people who intellectually, you know, lobotomized or people who maybe have a crutch, they need a crutch in their life. So the Roman shakers, they shook off the need for religion. That's for weak people. And maybe you can relate to the Romans. You're like, oh man, Chad, I don't know. If I, if, if I admitted I needed spirituality or God or Jesus, I'd be one of those weak people. So I'm going to be like the Roman shaker, shake it off. Other folks are the, the religious fakers. Now there were folks who were for Sadducees and, and Pharisees during those days, and some were very devout and very real. But many of them were hypocrites. They were fakers. They would pretend to be religious while they were really ripping people off financially. They used their religion to manipulate people. In fact, many of us have come to Horizon. We've been at church for five years, ten years, some of us twenty years. And we've thrown off even the idea of looking into the Bible because we've met many of those religious fakers. Put your hand on the screen and send me a thousand dollars for a vow of faith. Right? That's your vision of, of Christianity. You're like, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. But then there were the money makers. The money makers weren't necessarily against religion. They just had such important business going on for the last 20 years. They haven't had time to go to synagogue. And many of us, we spent the last 20 years of our life building our careers, building our industry. We're not against God or the Bible. We just haven't had time to look into it. We haven't had time to think about the deeper or bigger questions in life. But then there were what I'll call the opportunity takers. Almost every village that had 10 uh, Jewish elders would actually form a synagogue. And there's a large synagogue right here. And there were two types of people who went to synagogue. Devout Jews who had studied the Torah their entire lives, or the Bible experts. But then there were the, the, the rookies. The Gentiles, often called the God-fearers, and they were opportunity takers. They would come to synagogue and say, I don't necessarily believe in the Bible yet. I don't even know who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. But I'd like to come and explore I like to come and ask questions. So these Gentile God-fearers would come into these environments and begin to ask questions. One of the reasons we as a church have different environments is because we want to create synagogue-type experiences where those who are taking the opportunity to check out the claims of the Bible can. So maybe as you think about those four, maybe you can identify with one or the other. Maybe you find yourself, hey, I've been too busy to think about it. Yeah, I went through a time when it all seemed so fake, I gave up on it. Hey, I didn't even think people needed it. Or maybe I'm just starting the opportunity to, to start thinking about or taking in this idea. Let's turn the page. Because I think one of the questions we're all going to have to ask ourselves that they asked in Capernaum is this. Is looking into Christianity, is looking into claims of Christ worth it? Is it worth it? If I get serious about my faith, many of us say, well, well, well what's the cost going to be? You're selling, Chad. What's the cost? Am I going to have to forgive people I don't want to forgive? Am I going to have to give large percentages of my money away? Is that what you're really going for? Are you going to ask me to lose my, 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 my edge in business because I'm going to be meek now and gentle now? These are legitimate obstacles that I think many of us have when we think about getting serious about even looking into the message. 
What I want to challenge you with is this. It's not how much it cost. It's how much it's worth. Immediately you might be saying, wait, Chad, no, no, no. My wife comes home from shopping all the time and says that very thing. And I know that, that is no. Well, I'll say, how much does it cost? And she says, yeah, but I saved a lot of money. And oh, no, okay. So I realize that. That's sort of in all of us. But what I want to propose to you that Jesus is going to come and say, there is going to be a high cost. But what I'm offering is so valuable that it is worth every amount of emotional, spiritual, intellectual firepower you'll put into it because of what I'm offering. And so there's going to be three movements here in the, in the, in the passage today. We're going to look at how, how Peter is going to weigh the cost. Then we're going to look at how the disciples weigh the cost and ultimately how Jesus weighs the cost. So let's begin with Peter. So Peter's in Capernaum. He's doing quite well, but he has a particular bad day of fishing. And this bad day of fishing, Jesus is going to come up and he, Jesus is going to say to him, I want you to consider following me and changing the world. It's not how much it costs. It's how much what I'm offering you is worth. Let's enter the story and watch together. Now imagine this is a successful businessman. He's got a great career going on. In fact, now he is just about, he's just had the best catch of his life. And it's on this day when his career is at its peak that Jesus says, isn't there something more? And let me tell you that what I'm offering you has so much value and so much worth that whatever the cost of walking away from, from, from this business at this time, walking away from this way you've lived your life at this time, the worth is far outweighs. It far outweighs the cost. In fact, Jesus will tell a story in Matthew 13 to give an example of this. And again, Jesus was very astute in using business metaphors uh, real estate metaphors and commerce when he talked. Here's an example. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man found and he hid it in the, in the field. And for joy over it, he was so joyful. I want to get that treasure in that field. So he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. So what's he saying? He's saying, what you get, what I am offering is worth so much. That even if I asked you to sell everything, it would be worth it. He gives another example. He says, what about in a commerce Maybe you're a buyer or a purchaser. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. And one day he finds a pearl of great price. He's never seen one so perfect. He's never seen one so gorgeous. He's never seen one so beautiful. He says that is worth so much that what? He went and sold all that he had and he bought it. He bought it. Now, most of the time, Jesus did not ask people to leave their business. All through the Bible, you see people in business. Barnabas was in business, continued in business being a follower of Christ. Lydia was a seller of purple, high-end purple goods. But what he comes to us and says is, whatever your fear is about, all oh, the cost won't be worth what it's worth, you can let that go to rest. I'm telling you, what I am offering is so valuable that whatever cost you're worried about will pale in comparison to the pearl and to the treasure. In fact, when you make the swap... You won't go, oh, I got buyer's remorse. This is so not worth it. For the joy over it. What a great deal. This is a heck of a deal. I got more worth than I could even imagine. I remember I was in France, my junior year of high school on a mission trip. And I was sitting in this garden that the leader had us in. And I had my Bible open between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Very similar to where we are in Joy Story right now. I felt like God was saying, Chad, are you willing to obey me and, and do whatever I'm asking with your life? 
That was sort of the impression I got. You know, God didn't talk to me in audible voices or anything, but I just, that's the impression I got. And I remember writing in a blank page between my Old Testament and New Testament, God, I'm scared that giving my life to you means, you know, a life of, you know, going to some foreign country somewhere and doing bizarre things and eating weird things I don't like. Uh, I'm, I'm, Scared that maybe that would mean you'd call me into ministry. I don't want to be in ministry. I want to be a radio and television guy. I want to be an actor. That's what I want to be. I don't want to do whatever that is. I got family in ministry. They're impoverished. They barely make any money. Please, not that. And I just start writing all this stuff down. But at the bottom of that page, I went, but God, I'll go and do what you want. And that became a defining moment for me to say, God, whatever it is, I'm still scared. I'm still honest about it. But, but I want whatever you have more than whatever I'm scared about. I think for many of us, we have so came, come across caricatures of Christianity that we, know, we don't reject the Jesus and his message. We don't know the Bible, really, honestly. We just know what people who study the Bible look like, and they're weird, and we don't want to be like them. We reject the book by its cover, don't we? I walked into my office about a month ago, and, and I had this book sitting on my, uh, my desk with a note on it, a nice note from somebody in the church here. It said, Chad, I read this book, and I thought of you. I hadn't flipped over the, the note to see what the book was called, but I thought, he read this book and he thought of me. I started to imagine what the book might be titled. Great Leaders in History. <laughs> Great Preaching and How I Did It. Humility and How I Succeeded in Getting It. <laughs> so with all these sort of mental images of the hope of what this book will be, I, I take off the, the note and the book is called, this is not, this is a true story. I know usually I tell false stories, so this is a true story. I take off the note, and here's the title of the book. Shut the hell up. And apparently it's about dealing with evil forces in your life or something, but oh, I burst out laughing because this is the book he thought of when he thought of me. In fact, we've got these uh, cubicles that we work in. So my cubicle uh, is up in our office area, and so I've got the communication directors next to me, and we got some glass about 18 inches of glass between my office and hers, and same thing with our creative arts pastor. So every once in a while, they'll get loud, and I'll say, Hey, guys, i got a book you should read. Hey, guys, i got a book you should read. I think many of us have never read what's in the Bible. Like, I've never read this book. I've so enjoyed the cover um, that uh, I just keep using it, but I've never read the book. I think many of us have never got into reading the Bible or looking into what it really says, what the message of Jesus is, because we're so turned off by the cover. It was so offensive. It looks like, hey, to be a Christian, you've got to be intolerant. You've got to be judgmental. You've got to hate people or whatever. And so we have rejected the message because we think whatever it is, it's not worth the cost. And I just want to encourage you to consider it. Blaise Pascal was a famous mathematician, a famous philosopher. I think he was French, if I remember. And he became a follower of Christ, incredible thinker. Probably one of the greatest thinkers of human history. And he was surprised that his intellectual counterparts wouldn't even consider the message of Christ. He would bring the archaeological evidence. He would bring the manuscript evidence that the Bible was true, the historical reliability of the accounts of Jesus. And they wouldn't even consider it. So he proposed what's known as Pascal's Wager. Pascal's Wager says, hey, hey, at least consider it because if I'm right, the benefits far outweigh the cost. And if, if, if you're wrong, the consequences far outweigh the benefits. So Pascal's wager has been a philosophical term that it doesn't really prove that God exists. It just says it's worth checking out. Don't reject the book by its cover. 
So that's what Peter had to do. Peter had to decide on his greatest day of industry, on the greatest closing in his entire career. Would he seek out not just success, but significance? And that's what he did. So as we turn the page, we move not only from Peter, but now Peter didn't just weigh the, the worth over the cost, but now the disciples need to. Jesus is talking to the disciples, and many of those disciples will die horrific deaths at the end of their life for the cause of Christ. So the cost is high. So you don't minimize the cost. You couldn't minimize the cost. Many will be crucified upside down. Some will be boiled in oil. What kind of message do you give that says, hey, you're going to die one of the most brutal, horrible ways possible, but it will be worth it? And yet, you know, all 12 disciples died horrible, terrible deaths, and they said it was worth it. In fact, one of the credibilities that the Bible is true and that the message of Jesus is true and not some made-up story about somebody who hid and they found his body and they sort of brought a new guy in place for all that is all 12 of his disciples went to horrific, horrible deaths defending not a belief, not a philosophy, not a religion, but a historic reality that they saw Jesus dead and three days later he came back to life. His body, not his spirit, not cast for the friendly ghost. They touched his body. He ate food. And they all died terrible deaths because they said, what do you want us to do? We saw that it really happened. Tell us it didn't really happen. But it did. But now the disciples have got to weigh the worth of this belief and and proclaiming this belief and talking about this belief to the cost. And it will cost them their life. So Jesus, in the last days of his life before he was crucified, he tells a story. Really an analogy. He says, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep. It's going to be a cost. And you will lament. And the world's going to rejoice on those days. Yes, we took care of those Jesus people. And you will be sorrowful. But, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Here's the analogy he gives. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no more will be taken from you. To which you say, easy for a man to say. Right? But he's picking up that analogy. I remember when our, our Sierra was first born. She's our first. She's 16 now. I remember we're going through labor. We, best going through labor. <laughs> and I remember sort of trying to do the breathe thing. You know, I remember both the real teaching we had and I remember my Bill Cosby tape. So I was doing a little both. Push it out, push it out. Push, push, yeah, little Bill Cosby. That wasn't helpful at all, so I switched back to what we're supposed to do. So she's holding my hand, and she's like, I want to squeeze your hand. So she squeezed my hand. And oh my goodness, she is locked down on this thing. I got a pain! And I'm like, oh, oh, my ring is killing me. Now I can't say that, right? Because she's going through labor. But I, so between labor pains, I'm like, can you get this thing off? Oh, I got this thing off. We're going to get breathing on, honey. I know I'm breathing. And I'm trying to get this thing off. Yeah, you know, one comedian once said that amnesia is the condition that allows a woman who's gone through labor to make love again. I think that's a good one. That's amnesia. So here it is. And, and she's going through labor. And all of a sudden, Sierra is born and comes out. And there's that moment of terror in a, in a, in a father's eyes, at least, because she didn't breathe for what seemed like 10 seconds. It might have been two. But she came out and like, not breathing, not screaming. I've seen movies. You're supposed to scream. What's going on? My terror's going up. The pain was there. The terror's going up. And then, what? My goodness, she's alive! Oh, and I'm looking at my wife's eyes. I'm, I'm reading nonverbals amongst the nurses and doctors. And oh, it's like that moment. And, and you know this if you had kids. You can't believe the world's still going on. You, you, you can't believe that in this moment, everyone in the world hasn't come together to say, 
Look at this, a new life is here. And this life is like, it, it's, it's, it's part me and part my wife. And, and we're part of this. And all oh, the joy. And I'm kissing my wife. And she's holding on to Sierra. Did that mean that the pain was gone? No. Did that mean that the pain wasn't real? No. But there was a joy that emotionally, physically, spiritually overtook the pain. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm not coming to minimize your pain. In fact, he's talking to people who are going to go through some of the most horrific pain you can imagine. He's saying, now, what would it take? Think about the pain you're involved in right now. How good would it have to be to dwarf your pain? He's saying, Chad, I've been through terrible things. I can't even imagine something good enough to dwarf how big the pain is in my life. She says, you will. You will. The joy I'm offering, the worth I'm offering is so incredible that it will dwarf whatever the cost. So imagine the greatest cost you can imagine and then imagine something beyond your imagination that will make that cost shrink and dwarf. Not that it's not real. It will just be dwarfed by the joy I'm offering you. That's what God offers. That if you have been abused and terrible things have happened to you, you don't have to pretend that those were good things. The Bible calls evil what it is. That's evil. And that one day God will restore for the years the locusts have eaten, he promised. The promise that when you grieve, when you lose somebody... That the loss and the grief and the pain, and yet when you grieve, you can have the hope that you will see them again. And you can rub that hope into your grief. That's one of the benefits. You can know for sure that you're not alone, that God is with you. You can know for sure that when you run out of strength, you've got an access to the strength that created the whole world. I could go on and on and on. And the Bible says that he can do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond your imagination. Now, I've got a big imagination. And if the worth of what he offers is beyond my imagination, I can only imagine how good it will be. And that's what he says to the disciples, what I'm offering. And so for many of us, God says, if you're having struggles forgiving somebody because you're like, oh, the cost of letting go of that story and being the victim and finding my identity and what happened to me, let go. The joy you're going to experience by being forgiving is going to be far better than that story that you're telling. The, the swallowing of your pride and how hard that is to give up your pride and not be right this time is going to just be dwarfed by the joy you're going to infuse into your relationships, into your marriage, and into your family. The patience you're going to have with somebody who is so impatient, it will be dwarfed when you find out just how patient I was with you. Oh. And on and on and on. Whatever you give to me will pale in comparison to what I've given for you. So what motivates you to do that? What motivates any of us to weigh this thing, this worth of this thing Jesus offers, eternal life, he calls it? Why would we do that compared to the cost? Well, it's not just Peter that weighs the weight worth over the cost. It's not just the disciples, but it's Jesus. And here becomes the motivation as we turn the page. Jesus weighs the worth over the cost. And this becomes the drive in your marriage, in your relationships, in your life. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews, which is written after the time of Jesus. It says this. Here's how you do it. Here's how you make this move into being a follower of Christ. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
He what? He endured the pain. The cost. There's a cost. He had to endure the cross. He had to be shamed. He despised the shame. How did he do that? How did he put up with the cost of the cross? How did he put up with the cross of being shamed and, and ridiculed and mocked and naked before the world? Here's how. For the joy that was set before him. That the whole time he had nails pounded into his hands, into his feet, that he was spit upon, that God would turn his back upon him, the joy was, but when I'm done, people everywhere will have access to God, not based on their works, which are far worse than they think they are, but they can have free access to no condemnation and to no guilt, which means that when he was on the cross, he was thinking of you and thinking of me. Now think about this as we turn the page. If Jesus is only one of many ways to get to God... I know many of us think that. We've sort of grown up that way. We, don't, we really don't like these inclusive, exclusive claims of Christ. Jesus is sitting in the garden, and he's praying, God, please, if there's any other way that people can have joy eternally, if there's any other way people can get to heaven, if there's any other way people can know for sure that I'm with them every day, if there's any other way they can be forgiven past, present, and future sins, if there's any other way, please, I want to not do this. And God says, there's no other way. You have to do this. Now, either God so loved us that he sent Jesus to endure the worst pain because it was the only way. Or God is so sadistic that there's a hundred other ways and he just let Jesus do this for fun. If Jesus is not the only way to God, I don't want to know the God who would make his son go through this when there are other options. Worth considering. That while Jesus was carrying his cross and having a thorn placed upon his head, for the joy set before him, he kept dragging that cross. As he was whipped, most men didn't even survive the whipping. But while he was being whipped, he thought of you, the joy set before him, that you and I could have an unconditional, eternally guaranteed peace and reconcile with God. That's what he was thinking about. As he hangs upon this cross and he says things like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're not going to understand that unless you realize that God pours out on Jesus all of the impartial fair judgment on every wrongdoing of every human being in human history. That's what's happening at that moment. God is pouring out impartial fairness on Jesus for every wrong thing done by every human being, past, present, future. And that's why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, he says, it is finished. Finished. See, many of you have trouble forgiving yourselves. You say, well, I know that my spouse can forgive me. I know that my, my parents can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. And you know what you're doing? You're crucifying yourself. You know how wrong whatever it is you did is, so you are daily putting yourself on a cross. So look at this picture. He suffered enough. The, the joy of this is he suffered enough. There, there's no lack of suffering here. You don't need to add to his suffering by saying, well, Jesus suffered, plus I've got to sort of you know, do more. No, 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 no. That kind of belief system is so backward and so broken, it says that that wasn't enough. The reason Jesus endured such pain and such agony is because he took the pain for everything you ever did do or will do so that you don't have to beat yourself up anymore. 
so you don't have to have such self-hatred toward yourself and what you've done anymore. Freedom is here. Forgiveness is here. Joy is here. Why? Because He endured it all. He endured it. So you and I could have freedom and joy. And many of us, we grew up to church and we heard about Jesus being crucified and we walked out, oh, I did this to Jesus, oh my goodness. No, it's not a blanket of guilt, it's a blanket of joy. Yes, we did this and He paid for it and now He's not in the grave anymore. He's raised, He came back, He said, and I beat it, I conquered it. And now the conquering power of the resurrection can be in your life. The conquering power that says, I put other people's needs ahead of my, myself in the garden can be yours. And it's worth whatever it costs. Which brings us one last question. Go ahead and turn the page. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, three things can be your application. Lay aside every weight. Things that distract you in life, lay that aside. The sins, the wrongdoing that easily entangles you, lay those aside. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Run to, to touch and to taste of this grace and this joy that you've always wanted. This significance that you've always had, seemed elusive to you. Run after it. How? By fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I don't know if you've ever thought about Jesus being joyful on the cross, but he was. So here's the question. If I was worth the cost to him, shouldn't he be worth the cost to me? If I was worth the cost, and we got to see in that Red Rain video how terrible the cost was. If I, if you were worth the cost to him, shouldn't he be worth the cost to you? I want to give you a chance to hear firsthand somebody who's been through this journey of weighing the cost. So if you want to give a warm welcome to my friend Mark. Mark, come on up. Come sit right here, Grant. Now, Mark, you've been on, on, a, on a journey. Tell us a little bit about maybe your spiritual background leading up to uh, your, your time of coming to Horizon. Okay. Uh, well, I was... I grew up a, a good Irish Catholic boy, so there was plenty of guilt and fear to go around. And, um, I, but I was very fortunate to have two wonderful parents and a strong family unit. So I was baptized when I was born. I received First Communion. Uh, I was even an altar boy for a few years. And um, It's a great foundation. Great, great foundation. And then I went off to college, and I went to church a little bit, and it started to wind down as college went on. And, uh, and then I headed to California after college and started moving actually back and forth between Cincinnati and California for business reasons. Uh, during that time, I got married. We had two wonderful daughters, and we pursued um, you know, happiness in life through work and home and things and fun with family and friends. Um, and, uh, and yet, uh, and, and, and church wasn't a part of our life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yet we couldn't quite find happiness. And particularly I became frustrated and um, in, in pursuit of that happiness. So I tried to control uh, Events or circumstances or people, and of course that mm-hmm. didn't work. Yeah. Um, and uh, we got divorced, 
Mm. Um, we, uh, in that new chapter of my life, I poured more energy into work um, while I wasn't, if I wasn't spending time with my daughters. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I, uh, I, I met a woman, and two years ago we got married, and uh, we got married in a church that we didn't go to uh, by a pastor that we didn't know because I thought I wanted some sense of spirituality, but I didn't mm. really understand it. So. There's been a good kind of mm. 20 years of, I don't know, of looking, searching, yeah, yeah. sort of the, yeah. the characters in Capernaum, you know, shaking mm-hmm. it off for a little bit, pursuing it for I, a little bit. And big time. And when I was, I was like, well, okay, which one am I? Yeah, I'm maybe a few <laughs> of them. Been, yeah. now, so what brought you to Horizon? And how long have you been coming? Uh, I, it's been uh, almost exactly a year. Uh, and I, uh, there have been several struggles in, in my life, mine and members of my family. Uh, I was still struggling to find that elusive happiness, even though I had plenty of success at work with, you know, title or responsibilities and all those things. But um, I was still trying to control life. Hmm. And it was leading to frustration and anger, and it just wasn't working. Yeah. So um, I came here looking for peace or for something or someone to try to fill my needs. I was pretty selfish, really, I guess. Um, and I still remember the first day that I came. Uh, I walked in, and this place was so big, and uh, there were so many people, and I felt like everybody knew somebody except me, and I almost walked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, But some nice people greeted me, and I thought, well, it's an hour. What the heck? And... Uh, um, I remember. Was, was it worth the cost of that hour? That hour was worth it, yes. <laughs> I, I, One step at a time. One step at a time. Just for an hour, that was, you, you actually um, really, am, I, was, I was so taken by your honesty and your realism um, mm. in that first moment here. Uh, because I didn't feel like you were telling me to believe something, you were telling me to explore for myself. Mm. And, um, and so after that experience, uh, I decided to come back. And I remember when I came back, the next time there was this image up on the screen of this ram, I think it was, on a mountain. And uh, you said, you know, we're praying for the wrong things. We're praying for God to move the mountain uh, when we should be praying for stronger hooves and stronger Mm -hmm. legs so we can climb the mountain. Mm -hmm. And that really struck me. And then you said um, that the Bible doesn't promise an easy life, uh, but it does promise that God is with us and loves us no matter what. And I like the sound of that. Hmm. So I filled out a guest registration card. I was a little nervous about that. I was, even though you say it, I was still worried that somebody was going to come knock <laughs> on my door. door. Yeah. And, uh, but I did it. And, I, and then I got a phone call hmm. uh, from a very nice, soft-spoken man named John Kirby. He said, I just... Yeah. John's called and many I, of you, I see. Yeah. And uh, he just said, Hi. And he said, I'm glad you're, you're coming. And uh, I noticed that you said you might want to volunteer. What do you think you could do? I said, I have no idea. And, uh, and so I said, well, why don't you try the parking lot? It's not too difficult. You can do it once or twice a month. And, and, and I just give it a try. So mm-hmm. I did. So in one sense, you're getting a chance to uh, introduce people or direct people who are having the first-time experience. And yeah. long before people get in here, they decide if we're friendly by the greeters. They decide we're friendly by the parkers. And, you know, they're just... For many, they're being drugged by their wife. They're saying, come on, come to church, come to church. And, the, and you're looking for an excuse. Oh, that guy's mean. Let's go home. You know? So you're getting a chance to really be the first face of that kind of welcoming attitude. Well, one more thing. I'm going to invite the band to come up because we're going to do a song that I think talks about your journey, many people's journey. But um, what keeps you coming back? So you made it through the first hour. 
right. and it was worth it. Uh, now you're now you're actually volunteering. Would yeah. you would you thought a year ago that you'd be up here on stage talking about your spiritual journey? No, definitely not. <laughs> uh, so what keeps you coming back? Well, I mean, the beginning was definitely a tremendous learning, and all the light bulbs going off, and I mean, the music is pretty cool, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and uh, I guess the simplest way to say it is that it's working. Um, don't get me wrong. I, this has been the best year of my life. Mm. Not because it's been easy. Not because uh, everything's gone swimmingly. Uh, there's been a lot of temptations. There's been a lot of bad choices still. Um, and yet, I finally, I think, get it in that life can be joyful. Mm. Um, not easy, joyful, by mm. turning to God and um, by turning to Jesus and asking for help. Hmm. Help me be stronger. Help me look at things differently. Help me give more. Hmm. Um, help me be thankful. Hmm. And uh, I've done a lot of volunteering at East Station. I've done the men's group in the mornings. I uh, went on a mission trip a couple of weeks ago with a great group of, of, of men. And um, there are so many wonderful people here. And hmm. so I keep coming back because uh, I have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. A long, long way to go to be Christ-like in every way, every yeah. day. Um, but it really makes life pretty awesome mm. trying to get there. That's cool. So a year ago, uh, you were you know, somewhat skeptical and disillusioned. Mm. And a few weeks ago, you were a missionary. So you've gone from skeptical to a yeah. missionary in a year. Isn't that pretty yeah. exciting? <laughs> you know, that is, that is really what we're about as a church. We're about helping you take your next step, whatever it is. So this next song, we're going to have them play. It's called Salisbury Hill, and it talks about that journey of working up this hill of doubt and this hill of challenges, and your heart's beating. Is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be worth it? And maybe this song is your journey. It certainly was Mark's. Can we give him one more hand of applause and listen to the next song? Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. I love that last scene because it's Jesus coming to a skeptic named Thomas, one of his followers, and saying, here's the evidence. Check it out. Touch me. Feel me. Let's look into it. Yeah, at Horizon, we're yours to explore. You can believe whatever you want, Horizon. Well, we want to help you in your journey because we have discovered a God that makes your heart beat faster. And as you take those steps of whatever the cost you think is, you find that the worth always outweighs it. Let me give you a moment just to maybe pray. If you, if you want to sort of articulate that back to God, that belief, uh, let me give you just a, a one-sentence prayer. You can pray with me if you want, and then we'll take off. Let's pray together. Come bow your heads. You can just say something like this. God, I want to believe. Help me in my unbelief. God, I want to trust you. Help me believe that what you're offering is worth whatever the cost you'll ask. Forgive me. Lead me into that kind of joyful life. Amen. Hey, man, well, thanks for being here. we got several more weeks of Joy Story. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you want to greet some folks, ask some questions about our church, third door on your left, there are some volunteers there in the hearts room. Thanks again. We'll see you all next week.